Welcome to Food Psych, a weekly podcast about intuitive eating, health at every size, and body liberation. I'm your host, Christy Harrison, and I'm a registered dietitian and certified intuitive eating counselor. Join me as I talk with interesting people from all walks of life about their relationships with food and their bodies. Hey there, welcome to episode 124 of Food Psych. I'm your host, Christy Harrison, and today I'm talking with Amber Carnes, a body acceptance activist and yoga teacher who founded Body Positive Yoga. We talked about her journey from disordered eating to intuitive eating, embracing a health at every size mentality, why accessible yoga is a social justice issue, why community is such an important part of this anti-diet work, her process of mourning the thin ideal and embracing internal growth regardless of body size, and a whole lot more. I can't wait to share it with you in just a moment. But first, I'll answer this week's listener question, and we've actually gotten a few similar questions recently, so I'll just read one of them which is from a listener named Alicia, who writes, Hey, Christy, thank you for all that you do. I've truly found some peace and healing in my relationship with food from listening to your podcast, and I can't wait to start your online course on intuitive eating. I absolutely love the idea of intuitive eating and body acceptance. I would love to spread this message to the women in my own life, as I've noticed how many are struggling with this issue of body hatred. I'm so interested in how complex and unique our bodies function as individuals. I would love to get into the field of nutrition. I hear you talking other dietitians about school being an orthorexia trigger. What would be your recommendation in entering this field? Is there anything other than going to school to be a dietitian? I'm not interested in working in a hospital and giving meal plans. I would really love to help women have a great relationship with food and their bodies, and more importantly, help them feel amazing from the inside out through nutrition. I'm needing some advice on which steps to take in entering this field. Thank you. So thanks, Alicia, for this great question. And before I answer, just my usual disclaimer that these answers are for informational and educational purposes only and aren't a substitute for individual medical or mental health advice or in this case, individual career coaching or counseling. So there are definitely pros and cons to going to school to be a dietitian. I will say on the balance, I'm really happy that I did it. But the cons are, like you said, it can be an orthorexia trigger. You know, a lot of what is taught in traditional dietetics programs is very orthorexic or within the traditional weight paradigm, right, where you're counseled to tell people to lose weight and diet and all of the things that we're trying to get away from here. But I will say the pros of getting a dietetics degree are that it's still a really respected credential and it can allow you to do more than you might be able to do if you just had a coaching certification. So for example, like talking to the media, right? I get quoted a lot in the media because media are looking for someone with an RD credential to speak on a nutrition-related topic. So if you want to be a person bringing intuitive eating and health at every size concepts to the media, Still, thankfully, most media outlets require their experts to have a credential like a registered dietitian license. They won't just talk to anyone who says they're a nutritionist or like health coaching credentials aren't really given a lot of weight in the media for better or worse. So... 
If you want to do media work, having a dietitian's license is really helpful. If you want to work with clients who have full-blown eating disorders, that's another area where having a dietitian license is super helpful because it's not really ethical to do this kind of work as a coach unless you also have an RD and a therapist on the treatment team. It's the really ethical, medically accepted model of treatment for eating disorders at the outpatient level or even at the inpatient level. They have these people on the team too as having registered registered dietitian to create a meal plan or guidelines for someone for how to eat, and then a therapist to work on the internal stuff, the body image issues. And of course, there's lots of crossover between the two, right? So the therapist and dietitian work together on the team. And then there's also a physician on the team to help the person with medical issues. So if you wanted to work with full-blown eating disorders, you would kind of have to fall into one of those professions to be on a standard treatment team. Some people do have coaches on their treatment teams as well, but it's just like an extra team member, an extra expense. Oftentimes, clients can't justify having all those different team members. And so being a health coach working with full-blown eating disorders is not as common. So if you wanted to be able to do that kind of work, being a dietitian is really important and arguably essential. And there's actually a new graduate program at Simmons College for clinicians who want to work in the treatment of eating disorders. But really, the program is steeped in health at every size and intuitive eating. So if you go through that program, you could do other types of things, right? Nutrition counseling or coaching for people without full-blown eating disorders who just want to learn intuitive eating. I'm sure it would prepare you really well for that too. It's being spearheaded by my mentor and colleague, Lisa Pearl, who's actually coming on the podcast next week. So this was serendipitous timing, along with Marcy Evans, who was on the show back in episode 80. And this program is going to include both academic training as well as dietetic internship opportunities. Because to be a dietitian, you have to go through the academic training program and then do a dietetic internship, which is usually a year of unpaid labor, essentially, for a treatment center or a facility or wherever, you know, you can pick your rotations, but basically you have to do a year's worth of work experience before going out into the world and becoming a dietitian. So this program is going to include both of those components, the academic and the internship. And it's all, like I said, from a health at every size perspective. So definitely tune in next week to hear Lisa Pearl talk more about that and get some information about that program because I think that could be a really nice fit. The other option would be to do a health coaching certification or a coaching certification of some kind. But actually, many of those programs are orthorexia triggers too. I just haven't talked about that from personal experience on the podcast because I didn't do a health coaching certification. I did the dietetic training, but I have had guests on in the past who've talked about how they're health coaching program was triggering to them. Like Daxel Collier did an episode. I forget which episode it was, but we'll link to that in the show notes. But she talked about her experience of being triggered in her coaching certification. So it's definitely not just limited to dietitians. And actually, the biggest and most well-known health coach training program teaches people literally a bunch of different diets, like the kinds of diets you're trying to break free from. <laughs> and so it would probably be extremely triggering for anyone in the throes of orthorexia or disordered eating of any kind, right? Diet recovery, eating disorder recovery, what have you. So really the whole wellness industry is full of triggers at this point. And I think 
any training program you go through is probably going to have some. So that's just something to be aware of. You could try to find another coach training program, maybe some of the smaller ones, because I've heard some of those are not quite as diet focused. Like I've heard decent things about the Courageous Living Coaching Certification and also Coaches Training Institute. So that's not a guarantee that there are no triggers there. I can't personally vouch for them at all, but those might be ones to look into. So all that being said, I will say like training to become a wellness professional of any kind is going to have triggers. But when you go through your program, you'll get the basic skills of counseling. And if you become a dietitian, you'll get some really valuable information about nutritional biochemistry and how nutrition functions in the body, which can help with myth busting for people who have really disordered ideas about food and nutrition. You know, it's like helpful to know the sort of mechanics of nutrition and and be able to refute some of those claims that people might come in with when they're in a disordered mindset. So that's one point in favor of being a dietitian. But, you know, you'll get that basic information in your program, but then you can do specialized trainings after whatever you do, whether it's an RD program or a coach training program. The specialized trainings are still really where you get the meat of the health at every size and intuitive eating info. So I did the Certified Intuitive Eating Counselor Program, which is wonderful. Evelyn Triboli and Elise Resch, who wrote the book Intuitive Eating and basically invented the term intuitive eating, are the ones who run it. And uh, they've both been guests on the podcast, so you can hear their episodes if you want to check those out. So I really recommend that certification program. There's also Be Nourished, which has another great certification program, which you can get after you've done your coach or RD training. And Hillary Canavy and Dana Sturdivant are the people who run it, and they've both been guests on the podcast as well. They're amazing. They're very steeped in health at every size and anti-diet approaches and really take a social justice lens to all of these issues. So that's a great program to check out. I've heard wonderful things from my colleagues who've done it, and that is called Be Nourished. We'll put links to that in the show notes as well. So basically, taking the opportunity for continuing education after after you've done your initial training program is really where it's at for now in terms of health at every size and intuitive eating, with the exception of that one program at Simmons College that I mentioned, which is pretty much haze and intuitive eating from the ground up, which is awesome. But I think it's probably pretty small and not everybody who applies will be able to get in. So we need more programs like this. So if people are listening who have the know-how and the capacity and the time to create a dietetic training program, dietetic, you know, training and internship, that is much, much needed in the world. And hopefully we'll see many more of those kinds of programs in the coming years. So I hope that helps. And if you want to submit your own question for a chance to have it answered on an upcoming episode, you can go to christyharrison.com slash questions. That's christyharrison.com slash questions. And then if you want a whole library of answers from me about the nuts and bolts of intuitive eating, plus the chance to ask me any question you want in your journey to becoming an intuitive eater, join my online course, Intuitive Eating Fundamentals. The course has 13 modules of content teaching you the principles of intuitive eating and really breaking down the diet mentality. We spend a lot of time talking about that, and I really weave in health at every size and body acceptance principles throughout the course. Plus, there is an exclusive monthly Q&A podcast with me, which has answers to hundreds of participants' questions already. And that's what I mentioned. When you join the course, you can ask me your questions for that and have me answer them in the following month's Q&A. So it's basically like getting some one-on-one support from me and the chance to 
ask me unlimited questions. And so participants really love that aspect. They've said that it really does make things clear and they love having that personal connection, that personal touch from me as part of the course. And another thing that they really love is our private Facebook group exclusively for course participants. So it's really such a wonderful community. People are so encouraging and supportive of each other. And it's really nice to have that because a lot of us in our lives and our actual real meat space lives, we don't have people who get it, who understand intuitive eating and health at every size, who are trying to get away from the diet mentality too. Like it's amazing when we do find those friends and family who are on the same page. But most of the time, probably everyone surrounding you in real life is going to be pretty steeped in diet culture. So having a community for support on your intuitive eating journey and to really go through it together is super important. And people find that really, really helpful. Plus, I'm in there answering questions and providing guidance as well. So is my wonderful staff who are also great coaches. So you really get a huge amount of community support and individual attention in this course. So if you're ready to become an intuitive eater and leave diet culture behind forever, you can learn more and sign up for the course at christyharrison.com slash course. That's christyharrison.com slash course. And now without any further ado, let's go talk to Amber Carnes. So tell me about your relationship with food growing up. Yeah, so I don't have a lot of real specific memories of food stuff when I was a kid. I feel like I had a pretty normal relationship with food in my childhood. My dad mostly cooked and I would see like my mom struggle with body image just like, you know, most women do. But I don't remember any sort of like rules around food or any sort of like punitive, like weirdness or anything like that. But it, it's nothing really stands out in my mind until I kind of get to my like preteen and teenage years. And I do remember like when I was nine or 10 and I remember having like a diary and I would, I wrote something in it like this diary is for secret things like a diet. And then I, <laughs> I don't know why that's a vivid memory of like writing that exact thing, but, or why I thought I was needed to be on a diet when I was nine, because like, it's certainly not something that was ever pushed on me as a kid. Then I think as a preteen and teenager, the body image stuff started to creep in as it does, you know, for a lot of us. And I don't remember being in environments where it was super like focused on because I was homeschooled as a kid. And I was around a ton of other kids like at my church and like with homeschool groups. So like my mom actually ran a school for other parents who homeschooled their kids would like it was a big collaborative school. So we were always around a bunch of people, but it wasn't like what you hear kids talking about middle school where there's all this like competition and, you know, everyone is dieting or eating disorders. So it's interesting to me that it's still like, I grew up in this very sort of affirming childhood, but it still got me, you know what I mean? Mm, totally. And so to me, I'm like, that shows just like how pervasive it is because even though I don't feel like anything about my childhood was triggery or punitive around food or, or weight, it still kind of got me. So when I was, as I started to hit puberty, I do remember the first time I binged is actually a, a pretty vivid memory. And it was something to me that was, it was a stressful like family situation or something. And I remember doing that not out of like it wasn't like I invented it, but it was sort of like a reflex, you know what I mean? And so 
So for me, the disordered eating stuff that I've dealt with during my life has always been as a sort of coping tool around anxiety. And so I think that's kind of where it started. It's interesting because I think for a lot of people, binging starts as a reflex to a diet, right? It's like a, that restrict binge cycle is sort of what brings it on for some folks. But it sounds like for you, this was like just sort of instinctual. And I think for a lot of people who start young with any sort of disordered eating behaviors, it's like it just feels good. And so you do it. You don't really think too much about it. Right. Was that kind of how it was for you? That is. And, you know, that's always like, obviously, I became practiced at it at some point. But like, it felt like sort of a reset. And that's how I would like describe it if I, you know, was honest about how disordered eating always felt to me. You know, I have other friends that are they were anorexic or whatever. And to them, it was like feeling in control or feeling like they could play God or whatever, you know, and I've heard them describe it that way. And it was very much not that for me. It was sort of like, let's hit the reset button. And now everything kind of feels like I can move forward or whatever. So yeah, it's, uh, it's interesting to talk about it that way. But I think that that's the memory that I have of sort of food related to any sort of like bad memory, I guess. But I do have a lot of good memories of food from my childhood, like holidays with the family. And, you know, my dad would make like certain foods that we liked and things like that. So I don't think I've ever like actually talked to anyone about this in this kind of way. But it's it's interesting to me to reflect as we're talking and think that like, even though I feel like I had a very like normal childhood around food and eating, like I wasn't watching a parent active in an eating disorder or, you know, any of the experiences that like a lot of my friends have had, but it still was a thing. And I I guess it's pretty common experience. So. Yeah. What do you think that came from? Like, where did you get the idea that eating would be a response to anxiety or was there any sort of body image stuff that precipitated that at all? I can't really pinpoint that, to be honest with you. I think, as you know, and as like a lot of us probably know, eating disorders are really complicated things. And it's not like, oh, well, we look at these three situations and the fact that you had someone in your family and we can predict that you're going to have an eating disorder. Like sometimes you don't quite know like what pulls the trigger. And I, I can't really pinpoint something and say like, well, there is this perfect storm of this, this and this. But I've always been, I don't know if high strung is the right word, but like I operate at like a high frequency. I'm very like, driven and I accomplish a lot and I'm always kind of moving and, and doing. And so I think for me, it was, well, I mean, as, as a lot of us have used food to cope, like it was a way to kind of numb that and kind of bring me down a, a frequency, which later, you know, I found better ways to manage that. But <laughs> I think at the time it was sort of like as a teenager, as a preteen, like life feels overwhelming to like probably everyone because like you're in this weird threshold between child and adult and you can be in the most supportive family and have like this perfect upbringing quote unquote and it'll still feel that way I think yeah your hormones are raging yeah it's like involuntary like you're gonna feel trapped and weird and off kilter and like nothing's really wrong with you it's just this is what's happening to your body. <laughs> <laughs> right. And it makes, I mean, I think part of the reason that adolescence is such a fruitful time for eating disorders or not fruitful in a good way, but a time that it often happens is that 
there is that sort of like foreignness of your body and this discomfort in your body. Like what's happening to me? What is going on here? And then of course the fat phobia in our society too, demonizing weight gain makes a lot of people self-conscious and Many of the folks I've talked to on the podcast had that experience too, and I did as well, of just being like, oh my God, am I fat? You know, and thinking that that was the worst thing in the world because you've grown up thinking fat is the worst thing in the world because of fat phobia. And so then sort of having to wrestle with what's happening to my body, you know? Yeah, for sure. I know a lot of people have had that same experience. Yeah. So it sounds like the body image stuff wasn't really a huge factor for you in adolescence though, or was there a moment where it started to be? Yeah, I don't, I don't think so. Like I did when I, I guess like 13, 14. Well, so I developed, I guess really early, like I had C cup breasts when I was like 12. And so for me, that definitely was something that like kind of changed my experience in my body because of not because of my own body, but sort of the attention that I got from other people. So like from men on the street or whatever. And I kind of like, I think that affected me a lot, no matter how much intact my like sense of self worth was as a kid. Because I feel like, you know, my parents did give me that. That wasn't something that I think I was prepared for in any kind of way. I mean, like, how can you be prepared for that street harassment when you're 12 or whatever, you know? So I think that that was maybe the first indication to me that there was something about my body that was bad or wrong or warranted calling out in some sort of way. Does that make sense? You know, before that, I had a body. I did gymnastics and played softball and did all the stuff that kids do. And then something changed. And it was like my body was seen for the first time. I don't think I've ever actually said that, but like it just came to me now. And I I think that makes a lot of sense. Before it was, there wasn't the male gaze when I was a kid, right? (laughs) And so then at some point that came in and that affected affected me as it as it probably does a lot of people. And so I think that for sure that was part of like sort of in the corner of my awareness from then on out. Yeah, cuz I mean the male gaze really sort of comes between you and your body. It's like kind of takes you out of your body and has to forces you to see yourself from the outside and objectify yourself. Yes. Oh, it's so problematic. <laughs> I just was thinking about like I used to have this thing that only in the last like five or so years has gone away. But like I had this thing for a long time and I think it started around adolescence where my internal monologue would be in the third person. Like I would be like, she was blah, 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 you know, and it would be sort of the the voice of like whoever I thought was perceiving me or judging me at the time. Mm -hmm. And it would often be a guy or a guy I was interested in or whatever. And like I just reflected on that recently, like, oh, wow, that thing that was sort of a part of my internal monologue in my existence for years is now not really there anymore and it'll like occasionally pop up and I'll be like huh what the, what's that about you know but like I think it goes back to this thing of the male gaze like taking you out of your own experience for sure and you know I think as a I'm sure we'll get to talking about yoga and that kind of stuff but I remember like that was the first time that I really felt like in my body in the same way I did when I was a kid, like that I was fully present, you know, and not sort of like, 
aware of some, you know, like this third party is a, a good way to describe it. Like what you just said that like, you're aware of how you're being perceived at all times. Right. So, <laughs> yeah. And it, and it's so interesting, like going back to childhood too, because I definitely have that experience as well of like, there was a certain period of time in childhood where like I had a great relationship with my body and with food and it just wasn't a thing and I could kind of live my life. And then at a certain point I became self-conscious and there was like this long period where it wasn't good. And then again, it's sort of now like I've returned to this childlike state about it where it's just like not a thing anymore. Yeah, yeah. If only patriarchy had not shown up to ruin all of our lives. <laughs> I know. <laughs> Seriously. Oh, my God. <laughs> How did things progress from there then? Did you feel like, did the, the sort of male gaze and the self-consciousness about your body at that point then exacerbate the disordered eating or... Yeah, I gained a lot of weight in my teen years. And like I said, I wasn't bigger as a kid. And then when I hit puberty, like I gained a lot of weight. And I don't see like, when I think back about it, I don't have a lot of individual memories of like my body as a teenager or whatever. I think like for a long time, and I still can find myself sort of reverting to this now because I am a, you know, I'm smart and I like use my brain for work and I create a lot of, I write and I talk and I do that kind of thing. It's easy for me to sort of like live from the neck up. And so... For me, I I feel like I don't have a ton of memories of like my body as a teenager, like for better or for worse. I know a lot of people when I've had these type of conversations with like the women that come to my retreats and stuff like that. And there are these like horrible memories from going to the beach and people at school, like giving them hell and all that kind of stuff. And I really don't have those types of stories, but there seems like to be a gap there in my memory. And so for me, that's a clue to know that with regards to my body, I probably was not fully present a lot of the time. So I would say that like in my early 20s, like or maybe when I was like 20, I was for the first time sort of introduced to the concept that because I sort of I don't know why, but like I sort of thought like, well, I'm fat. Sometimes I just eat a lot when I'm really sad or whatever. And that's just something that like fat people do. Like, I didn't know. And so like, I ended up friends with someone on live journal who was like part of this eating disorder recovery community. And like, I looked in there and there was like other women who were talking about the same kind of things that I did. And I was like, what? Like I have an eating disorder. And I remember talking to different people about it. And some people were just like, it's not a big deal. That's not an eating disorder and whatever. So I ended up wanting I was like, I don't want to do this anymore, like if that's what's going on. And so I ended up talking to a therapist and kind of working on some things with that. And I feel like I did get to a more integrated place. And like for me at the time, I feel like it was, if I don't have this eating disorder anymore, then I'll be able to lose weight. Like that was sort of my fr- my frame of mind around it was like, if I don't, use food in an emotional eating kind of way, then my body will return to its natural state, which of course I assumed was thin. So (laughs) imagine my shock and dismay when I wasn't binging anymore and my body did not magically become thin, which is interesting because that's around the same time that I found yoga. And that sort of took me in a really different direction. 
I remember the first time that I went to yoga was because I was going to a gym, you know, I was on this big weight loss project and the trainer at my gym was like, you should go to yoga on your rest days. Mm. And so I was pretty sure like fat people didn't go to yoga, but I was like, whatever, I'll go because they said I should. So I went to the studio and I was the only fat person there. I don't remember anything about the class, what we did. But what I did remember was getting in the car and driving home and like 10 minutes down the road, the soundtrack started back up. You know, the one that tells you you're stupid and ugly and fat those things. And so like the, you know, the little nagging, like self-doubt voice came back and like, I realized if it came back, then that minute it stopped like for a few minutes. And that was very interesting to me because that hadn't been absent since before the male gaze. You know, <laughs> so I, um, I was like, well, this is interesting. Like, I wonder if it was because of the class or something else. So I decided to go back and just see like, if that's what it was. And so, yeah, it was, I couldn't have articulated it then, but now I know that I was, you know, fully present in my body for the first time in a long time. And many of us know about the the powerful internal regulation tools that yoga gives us and other forms of embodied movement. And so for me, it was very transformative and like right away I saw a benefit from it. And even though it was many years before I found a teacher that like actually knew what to do with my fat body as a yoga student, like I had, I was ignored by teachers a lot, but I didn't know that there was supposed to be kind of any other way. Like I just assumed my body was wrong, of course, because it was right in my mind. I was just like, oh, it's messed up. Of course I can't do what everybody else can do because I'm a loser or whatever. It wasn't a big deal to me that I wasn't necessarily going to yoga because I was feeling great in my body or whatever. Like to me, it was about quieting the Okay, so the thing I talked about with binging, that was like the reset button. Yoga like scratched that same itch, but in a good way. So I felt that same sense of calm that, of course, was very fleeting with the binging because you binge. And for me, it's like, I mean, it's an adrenaline rush probably, right? My experience of binges was like, it was bad, it was out of control. But then when it was over for a minute, I was just like, okay, that's done. And like it was quiet for a second. And then the self-shame and beating yourself up and all that stuff and feeling bad comes in and then you feel physically bad and all that. Well, when I went to yoga class, I didn't have any of the bad after effects, but I had that moment of quiet, even if it didn't last days or whatever, it was that experience of, okay, I'm here and everything's okay for a minute. I think that it really speaks to the the thing that eating disorders are adaptive in some way, you know, that people wouldn't do these kinds of things if they didn't give them something that they need. And so kind of listening to the the desire underneath the disordered behavior could give you a clue to what you actually need more of in your life, you know, and for yeah. you, it was like that space and that feeling of reset or freedom from the sort of typical chatter in your mind. Yeah. And the freedom from like, being, like I said, you know, that awareness that a lot of us have as like our body as a third party, I was integrated when I was in my body moving mindfully. Like I didn't have that separation, I guess, that is sort of how it feels. And so for the first time in a long time, I was doing a physical activity that wasn't punitive, that didn't have anything to do with losing weight or changing the way my body looked, but it was something positive. And it was also like, 
I kind of was able to recognize, huh, my body like did this thing, which accomplished something good for me. And that sort of like cracked open that body as the enemy type of thing. Cause I was mad at my body. I was like, look, I'm dieting. I'm going to the gym. Like you're not losing weight. I would get to this point and then my body wouldn't like go any further. Like I was upset. I was pissed off. I was like, what's wrong with it? And then I would go to this yoga class and it was very like cognitive dissonance because then it would feel good. And then I was like, I felt peace and I felt freedom in my body, which was confusing because I was mad at it. You know what I mean? So I think that started to kind of like break that apart for me and bring me to a place where I could start to examine some of that stuff. And, and I think if I hadn't kind of gotten to that place where, so, you know, intellectually I had heard things about self-acceptance or body acceptance, you know, I had even heard of fat acceptance at this point, but I wasn't intellectually ready to hear any of that because I hadn't experienced my body as like a positive thing since I was a kid and since everything got scrambled up in my mind. And so I needed that experience first, I think, before I could really be ready to process any of the other stuff. Yeah, that makes so much sense. It's like a bridge into self-acceptance. Yep. And how did you start dieting? Like what gave you the idea to diet and sort of be punitive towards your body? Because it sounds like there it wasn't modeled for you as a kid. So at some point, you must have kind of made the choice, right? At some point, yeah. I really don't know that I can pinpoint that. I mean, my mom dieted and the ladies in the church dieted, but I never really viewed that as like, I just thought that was like something that women do. I didn't ever, I never received the message as a child that like your body is bad or too much or whatever. So for me, I really think it was like when I went through puberty and then my body grew, the bad attention was coming because of that. And so then to me, I think probably there was some instinct that was like, we'll fix that. Mm. You know? Yeah. I mean, I think that's also really interesting. The idea that like, that's something that women do, right? Because I feel like a lot of us grow up with that mindset too. Even if like for me too, my mom dieted and I was never told to lose weight or that I was there, you know, there's anything wrong with my body or whatever, but it still seeped in there. So that like when I became a woman, I was like, oh, this is available to me now, you know? Uh-huh. Uh-huh. Yeah. And I never dieted as a teenager. So like when I was like a preteen, I guess, and, you know, 12, 13, I don't know, I remember some like restriction stuff going on then, but then I didn't diet for a long time. Like, I feel like that was part of the whole, like, I'm just going to ignore what's going on here. And I didn't start on all that until I was 20 or 19 or something. And so I find that interesting. And I, even though I've, I've spent a long time in well, a lot of time, I guess, in therapist office specifically about eating disorder stuff, I realize now like I've never been inquired about like all this stuff to this, this particular degree. And so um, (laughs) it's interesting to me and I'm sure I'll reflect on this later that like, Hmm, where did that come from? Because I did, you know, I have friends whose story is like my grandmother was hateful and she always told me that my body, you know, that I was fat and took my food away. And like, I don't have any stories like that. Like my childhood was good. I feel like my role models were, I don't feel like there was any kind of degree of body hatred there that was uncommon or even like overt. It was more like regular old body image issues that every 
all you ask thin women who are conventionally attractive and 80% of them are dissatisfied. You know, it's just like, oh, that's just what women do. And so it's interesting to me that I still went there. But I guess we deal with these like difficult emotions and hormones and all that stuff when we're a teenager. Then like maybe the easiest thing is to blame the body because where else are you going to go? Like, I guess you could assume that you're going crazy. I guess you could, you know, like, I don't know what, (laughs) I think that's why maybe it's natural because it's, it's something that I guess we do think we can control or affect change in some way. And I guess a lot of people's story with eating disorders is like, that was something that they could control. And although for me, like it kind of showed up in a different way, I think probably there's some of that behind it too. So. And it's interesting, like this idea that just body shame is so normalized, right? That it's like, well, that's just garden variety body image stuff, you know, like that that's what diet culture does to us, that it's so available, that it's so like you can kind of just jump into this huge mainstream that's going that direction, you know, towards kind of like low level body hatred. And so it doesn't even feel like that big of a choice or that big of a deal. No. But it actually is, you know, like to me, it's like that's exactly what we need to do in shifting society away from this diet culture stuff, because like it's just so insidious and so subtle. It's very easy for young people of all genders really to like step into that and just be like, oh, this is okay because this is what I do. Yeah. And when it's an eating disorder where you sort of know this that it's a symptom, like I think some people have said with like purging, it's like they kind of know that's that, you know, that's quote unquote bad or it's an eating mm-hmm. disorder, right? Because that's sort of the one of the conventional pictures of an eating disorder. It's sort of easier to know maybe like, oh, I have a problem here. But when it's just kind of hating your body and kind of restricting and kind of, you know, occasional binging and you don't even think anything of it. It's easy to just be like, oh, well, that's just life. Yep. Yep. And and I think it's so pervasive that, I mean, like you go around any office in America and what are the women going to talk about when they get together? Who was worst with their diet? Who's been good? Who went to the gym and who didn't? Like all that stuff. And it's just so the focus. And I do think that's one of the reasons why diet culture is so insidious and sneaky is because like it masks as a way for us to bond and to like find community as women, but it's not the real thing. Mm -hmm. It it really drives us apart and it sets us up to compare and, you know, compete with one another. And, and it's sort of like this wolf in sheep's clothing, like that way in my mind. I've totally talked about that on the podcast too, because when I was growing up, same as you, like I didn't really have any issues with my body or food. It never occurred to me to diet. And then at a certain point, I gained some weight. I decided to diet in college, and then it sparked off the eating disorder. And when I sort of dove into diet culture there, I discovered this new way of talking to people and talking to women specifically that seemed like bonding. And it seemed like this whole new level of intimacy that never was available to me before. And I was like, oh my God, what have I been missing? You know, maybe Mm -hmm. this is the thing that I've been missing all along is this sort of way of like bonding in this very conventionally feminine sense. Mm -hmm. But actually it's not really real bonding because you're you sort of pretend to be talking about something deep but it's actually something very boring and very like surface you know yeah but it sort of touches on really deep stuff like our self-image and our desire to know that we're okay and like maybe there's some relief you can get in talking about that stuff with people when they can validate you but it's not like 
it's not like they're validating you yourself. They're validating you for this, you know, this thing that you're doing, like praising mm-hmm. you for your diet or sticking to whatever, you know. Yeah. And I think that's one of the things that's so dangerous about it that we don't really see. But like this system is set up to like help us know our place as women. And like, you know, if you're obsessed with calorie counting and your juice cleanse and whatever else and like what size you are and how many pounds and all this, that keeps you busy, man. Like you Mm -hmm. that becomes your like full, you know, part time or full time job. Self-loathing takes a lot of time and and trying to keep yourself in check all the time and all this. It's like man, patriarchy doesn't have to do it for us. We're doing it to ourselves because we bought into this system that like, this is what our life is supposed to be about. Even if we never say it overtly, like we always got to be working on things. And once you sort of buy into it and, and are part of it, like then other people encourage you to continue in it. And so it really does become something that I think there is some community that women find there like that, like you said, feels nurturing and something that they need, which is true. We do need community. We need friendship. We need to be around like-minded people, but it's around this thing that's like never going to be healing and give you true satisfaction because the whole premise of this thing is that there's something about you that needs to be fixed and constantly worked on. Mm-hmm. Totally. It's reminding me of what you said about binging, where it's like, you know, it seems like it's scratching the itch, but it's got all these other negative consequences that can never really fulfill you in a sustained way yeah. versus, you know, something like yoga or whatever, which is like a practice that is truly nourishing. And so, mm-hmm. yeah, finding community in a way that is actually nourishing and not built on this foundation of like self-loathing, mutual self-loathing and shared expression of self-loathing is really important and really difficult because it's hard to, I mean, I've talked to a lot of people, you know, a lot of clients and listeners who've said they don't have an in-person community who thinks the way we do in, in our community, right? In this health at every size, body positive community, they don't have people in their lives who get that. And so they're just constantly surrounded by diet talk at the office or with friends and family. And it's like very hard to connect with people on a different level. Yeah. I literally just made a video about this because someone sent in a question about I'm totally inundated by diet talk and all this. And like people are constantly like, if you did this, you'd feel better about yourself. And don't you want a man to find you and all this? And she's like, I just don't feel like I fit in. I'm like, of course you don't fit in because you have just told me that you want to practice intuitive eating and you like to move your body, but not in a punitive way. I'm like, you're never going to feel like you fit in with those people. Like you're not those people. And like, it really is difficult though. Like when that's all that's surrounding you to be that one person that's different and like um, to be able to kind of go against the grain and, and trust yourself. Because one of the things that dieting does to us is make us not able to trust ourselves. So that's already undermined (laughs) and you're in that vulnerable place of like, well, I need someone else to control me, to tell me what foods I can eat, to tell me how many calories or whatever. And so to be able to stand up to that by yourself is really difficult, which is why I, you know, if anybody asks me about, you know, how do you get to this place of self-acceptance? Like, I feel like community is such a key part of that. Even if they're not in person, like online, whatever you can do to find people that are on the same path, it's a messy path. And there's not, it's not like you can go to a weekend workshop with one of us and then be done. 
this is something that you're going to have to kind of stay on top of in a, in a lot of ways, I think like eating disorder recovery, like the way I've heard people talk about addiction and things like that, you're never done. And so I think community is such a huge part of that. And like diet culture has that figured out. Why do you think Weight Watchers is so successful and makes so much money? They have community built into it. And it's not, it's not really the kind that we need. It's a community based on the fact that we're not good enough, <laughs> but we'll take it where we can get it sometimes, you know, if we, if we don't know that there's a different way. Oh, so well said. I know because community really is important. We all want to feel a sense of belonging. We all want to feel like we have support systems and friendships and people who are close to us who know us and love us. But like to be known and loved and supported for something like dieting just isn't a sustainable thing. Right. Oh, yeah. So, I mean, <laughs> going back to your story with yoga, do you feel like you found a community there that helped you see things differently? Or how did you how did you get out of that place where you were going to yoga as a sort of stretching on the off days from the punitive personal training to practicing yoga for its own sake? Yeah, I think so. I had this cognitive dissonance, right, of like on the one hand, the body needed to be like subdued or whatever. And on the other hand, I had these good experiences. And so I did quit going to the gym for a while. But I yoga has been a consistent practice for me since then. Sometimes more, sometimes less, like sometimes daily, sometimes I would go and then I'd go two weeks later, you know, but it was all it was there. And so I didn't quit dieting or um, trying to change my weight. But for many years, I was sort of like not committed to diet culture in the way that that I sort of had been when I was on that big weight loss project. I went to I remember being in Weight Watchers a lot during that time. Like that was my, you know, and I did lose a significant amount of weight as all diets do, they work temporarily at first, and then you gain all the weight back plus more, which was my experience. And then let's see, I'm trying to remember chronologically here. So during all this time, I was on Live Journal, and Live Journal had a lot of radical fatties on there who were posting pictures of themselves and awesome outfits. And I was part of like fashion communities on there. And some of these fashion communities had people in them that were very political about bodies. And it was interesting. I was just talking to a friend of mine about this, how I noticed in my experience and a lot of other people's experience along this sort of journey from hating your body, diet culture, totally buying into it to like radical body politics. There are these very clear stops along that journey. And one of those was I could start to see that I recognized the beauty in other people's bodies. Like I was like, oh my gosh, she looks like a badass in that outfit. And she's really fat. Whoa, this is okay. But she's cool. Oh, maybe I could be like that. But then I, the thing like, so I could recognize the beauty in other people. And then when I would talk to anyone or sort of read something about self-acceptance, it would be like, well, I totally accept their bodies. Like I'm I'm cool with that, but not for me. Like for me, I need to be a lot smaller before I can start that. I need to be like once I'm finished like dieting to this certain size, like if I'm a size then like maybe I could start to to accept my body. It's fine for them, but it's not for me. And I've heard this over and over again, and I think there's I'm actually writing a post right now about this the like 
fantasy that we have, like the magical thinking around what will happen if we get thin and how like thinness doesn't only mean like, like we don't have thoughts like, well, when I'm thin, I will look really good in a pair of shorts. We have thoughts like when I'm thin, I will find a partner. I will do all the hopes and dreams that I have. I'll be this totally different person who lives in like this amazing house. Like we have this crazy magical thinking about what will happen if we're in this thin body and surprise, surprise for the people that have become thin, they're still the same person. It's a big disappointment. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> and so like I've been bigger and I've been smaller and I was the same person with the same issues and, and the same strengths and weaknesses at both sizes. And so like, Getting over that hump, I think, was probably the most difficult part of self-acceptance for me because we get sold this promise from society, from diet culture, that if you're in this type of body, then all the rewards and treasures in the world are waiting for you because thin bodies are held up as such a goal and a thing to strive for. And they got us in this system that we're constantly striving for that. So we'll be real busy with that and not do anything interesting or effective with our lives. (laughs) So for me, that was a big kind of hump to get over. And honestly, it it was chipping away at little pieces here and there. You know, I, a lot of it, I will say like was due to the internet and like fashion was my gateway drug (laughs) as it is for many people. And honestly, it, it was visibility and representation was extremely powerful to me. Um, Seeing myself reflected in people that I thought were hot and happy and seeing these girls, you know, I've kind of always been like an artsy person and interested in fashion and like to sort of express myself that way. And so seeing people who did this and really like that, I was like, oh my gosh, I want to be them. And I noticed that they were fat at the same time, like blew my mind representation was huge for me. And that visibility piece, which I think is sort of like, it's the 101 that gets a lot of people into this path is as soon as you can start to recognize beauty in other people's bodies, then that by logical extension means that you can start to recognize it in yourself. Took me a while to get there, but being part of those communities online and reading people that really influenced me like Marianne Kirby, Leslie Kenzel, they were part of all those like live journal communities that I was a part of first. And when I was really resistant to the idea that the body was something political and that kind of thing. And, and I remember there were like two kinds of people in those groups. There were like the political radical fatties. And then there were like the girls that were into fashion. And I started as one and became the other and didn't always like handle myself in the best kind of ways. And I, (laughs) I'm destined to have my biggest learning opportunities be the most painful situations. So like, I would get checked on things a lot and learning about my privilege and and learning what kind of language I needed to use and, and all that kind of stuff. And really unlearning a lot of the stuff that I realized had gotten in my head somewhere put there by patriarchy and white supremacy and society and all that stuff. Unlearning that was very much a part of the process. And so for me, like really spending time cultivating my sort of media diet was very important. And this is something that I really encourage people to do if they want to start to get over that fantasy of like, 
the magical thinking about being thin that like this body is going to come save you someday. You have to be able to unprogram that stuff and like mainstream media, TV, magazines, blogs, ads that pop up in your Facebook feed. None of that stuff is going to validate you and your existence probably if you're in a non-conforming, non-normative body. And so you have to cultivate that for yourself. And again, this comes back to the community you build, the friends you hang out with, the people that you allow to have counsel in your life, and also the images that we look at, because that's very powerful. I mean, we get shown like thousands of advertisements a day. And so you have to start taking that stuff out and putting good stuff in. And that is a big I was reading a, a book recently that was talking about addiction and and how much of our choices are actually directed by like unconscious biases and desires and things like that. And you know, there's a lot of scientific research behind this. And so like you almost have to unbrainwash yourself to be able to get to a place where you can start to, you know, not only intellectually understand things like all bodies are deserving of worth and respect. Like intellectually, you can think that. But if deep ingrained in you is that there is a better and a worse type of body, then you have to like unprogram that somehow. And I think bit by bit, the people that I started to follow and read and be influenced by online did that for me. And, and it was a slow journey. It did not look like a straight line. It looked like a scribble more like. <laughs> <laughs> and until finally, I quit dieting when I turned 30. And I'm 35 now. So up until that point, I was still not constantly and consistently, but I still would pursue intentional weight loss. I also had a lot of physical pursuits in there that were totally fun. Like I was I did CrossFit for like four years and that wasn't like to make myself smaller. I like actually felt strong and I, there was community there and I found weightlifting through that. And that was like, that was more of the same medicine that yoga gave me, like feeling empowered and totally present in my body. And so I really had these sort of mixed experiences where it's like, I'll rejoin Weight Watchers, but I'm also feeling like a badass deadlifting pounds. Like there was all these like strange contradictions going on. But I think that's part of it. I think that's part of the sort of messy path of getting there and really deprogramming all that stuff that gets subliminally put in our minds, you know, not to say like, you're a sheep and advertising is brainwashing you. But like that stuff is designed to do that. It's designed to teach you things. It's designed to make you hold up one thing as good and one thing is bad and constantly have you comparing yourself to that and not be present because if you're present, you wouldn't need it or believe it. And so unlearning that was a big part of it. And so I decided that I wanted to stop dieting. I had read a bunch of stuff. I had discovered health at every size. I had, I knew that that was what I needed to do. I knew in the therapy I'd sought for eating disorders, I knew what intuitive eating was and I had practiced that and I'd read all the seminal texts on all this stuff. Like I was ready finally. And so, yeah, that was my goal. And I think I officially like sort of drew a hard line and was like, I will not pursue intentional weight loss anymore. And I think 
it's interesting that a lot of times when I talk to people about this and they find out the real kind of truth about the diet industry and that weight loss, you know, fails 95% of the time. And even for the people, the 5% who kept off the weight, usually it's only percent of their body weight, like all those mm-hmm. kind of things. And that it's through very disordered means and it right. takes over yeah. their life. Mm-hmm. And I, I really have gotten the reaction a lot of times that like, you jerk, like, don't take my hope away. Right. When actually the message that we're bringing here is a really hopeful one, which is that you can do significant things to improve your health that have nothing to do with your weight. That's the tenets of health at every size. Like science says that behaviors determine health, not weight. Every time behaviors are a better determinant of health. And you can like live a totally awesome kick-ass life as a person in whatever body you have today. And you don't have to like pursue this endless game that is always going to like the house always wins and you are not going to beat it. And science says it. If you don't believe all the people that you've watched struggle your whole life, there's plenty of peer-reviewed research that says that weight loss is not, no one knows in the history of human whatever how to get someone permanently thin. It doesn't exist. And so I think that for me, once I realized that that was a hopeful message and not one that doomed me to a miserable fat existence, but like, dude, you're doing cool stuff now. Like you have client, like I was freelancing at the time. Like you have, you have a cool job. You have clients that are cool that you're working for. You're lifting weights and you're really good at it. And you have this strong yoga practice and like all this different stuff. And I was just like, I finally, I think reached that tipping point where I was like, Oh, this is what it's like. Okay. Yeah. I can get on board with that. And I'm not going to, I'm not going to waste my time with this stuff anymore. Yeah. So it sounds like you had to sort of take it really slow and do a lot of experimentation on yourself to get to that point where you could accept like, yeah, my life can be awesome and I don't have to pursue this anymore. Yeah. Yeah. It took me a long time. I'm pretty hard headed. So it took me a while. (laughs) (laughs) Same here. (laughs) A lot of our listeners, I'm sure too, you know, I think it's, it's hard to give up that dream, right? Because that's, that dream is given to us. It's like in the water, you know, that yeah. if you if you get thin enough, you will be happy, successful, valued, like all of these things that we want out of our lives. Sure. Yeah. And everybody has their own little list of like what would happen if they became thin, right? Like I know in Maria Hornbacher's memoir, she talks about I would be five foot 10 and I wouldn't have freckles and I would be in this New York apartment with my husband, bring me flavored coffee. Like, and then Mara Glatzel has her own list that I've read. Kate Harding and her post about talking about the fantasy of being thin says that like, when she's thin, she's automatically going to become an outdoorsy person, but she hates <laughs> camping and bugs and everything <laughs> else. You know, like she wants to stay in a hotel, not go camping. And like, So we all have this personal image of what it is. And my thin person had a lot of money and didn't have to worry about where the next paycheck was coming from. It was just comfortable and would just love to run, which I don't. And like, you know, it was all these different things. And and so I think it's funny, like when we finally are able to step back and really process that like intellectually, but like in our sort of soul too, and understand that that's not real. Then, yeah, like a lot of people have this moment of like grieving over that, but also 
Now you can let that go. And you don't always have to come up short because you're comparing yourself to her, whoever that is. Right. Because that's not real. And that's not you. It's never going to be you. You're still you, even if you lose a bunch of weight, temporarily, long term, whatever. You still are you at the core. Like that's not going to change your personality, your brain, how you do the world. That's all still there. So like my, I tell people this a lot. It's like, what do you want to do? What's that thing that you think you're only allowed to do once you become thin? You know, for some people it's travel, have a boyfriend, like go for it with my career, start a family, whatever it is. Dude, you are not going to be on this planet forever and you have to get started. Do not wait because that might never happen. Like that moment may never happen when your thin body rides up on a horse and like sweeps you up and takes you off in the sunset. (laughs) So then finally you get to do all the fun things. That's not going to happen. Like science says 95% chance that's not going to happen. So you only have a 5% chance of being happy. I don't like those odds. You need to do it now. You have life to live and nobody else is going to give you permission to do that. And the the thin body is not going to come save you most likely. And when she does, if she does, you're going to be the same person and you're still going to have to get started. So just like live your life. And if the thin body does come save you, it's like not really saving you because you're likely going to be miserable. You know, like if you're I know plenty of thin people are miserable. Yeah. (laughs) And if you're trying like if you have lost a bunch of weight and you're trying to keep it off and you're trying to do that five percent or less, you know, some studies, it's even less like sort of thing that that is held out as the promise. Unfortunately, the disorder, the level of disorder that comes with that kind of effort is so high that it it detracts from the rest of your life too, right? Like you're organizing your life around right. calories and exercise and you know yeah. all the stuff that you're organizing your life around in a clinical eating disorder as well. Yeah. I, I don't remember who said it, but I remember somebody was like, the people that they know who have maintained this permanent weight loss, like they don't watch their weight. They micromanage the ever-loving shit out of it. <laughs> like you have to be like most of them become fitness trainers. It's insane the things that we try to do to, and for what? Like, what is that person doing that I'm also not capable of doing if I wanted to? You know what I mean? Like, like in life, that person still has to get up every day and be a human. And so do I. And we all have our whole like sets of challenges. And some of us are born with a lot more privilege than others. And there's a lot of factors in there. And somebody that has money might have it easier than somebody who doesn't and all that kind of stuff. But everybody still has to like deal with our personalities and other people and everything else. And none of that is mitigated or taken away if we become thin. You're just smaller while you do it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so. And it's it's interesting, this idea of like postponing your life and sort of having this alternative fantasy person that's thin because it's like... Like you said, there's things about your personality that are pretty set. And then this version of you that's thin is supposedly like magically going to have all these other things that you don't have right now. But it's like, okay, the fantasy of getting thin is sort of a stand in for all this other stuff that you might want. 
and maybe goes along with some other stuff that is like the fantasy version of you. Well, you can't get thin and stay thin permanently. That is very, very unlikely as we've been talking about. But like maybe you could become a person who likes the outdoors more if you tried it, if you Uh really want that. Right. If that's a fantasy version of you that's like coming from an authentic place or maybe you could like try to find a job that gives you more steady income so you do feel more stable or something. And obviously there's privilege in that. But like, Mm -hmm. you know, to whatever extent possible, maybe there's some version of that fantasy person that you can pursue in your life that has nothing to do with getting thin. But that's just like, is this an idea that I think is worth bringing into my life? Is this a part of me that I've been denying or cutting off from and like sort of pushing it into the future saying like, when I'm thin, I'll have this. Yeah. You know, why not do it now? Why not at least try it now? And one thing, you know, I think earlier you were talking about, like, what is the core desire behind that binging behavior? And I I like to think about it that way with this stuff. It's like, what is the core desire behind I would be an outdoorsy person, right? Like, is it that you want to be more connected to nature or you want to return to like a more simple way of living, a more natural way of living? Is it that you want more types of physical activity? Like, so really being able to do some self-study, which is a huge part of, you know, what we do in, in the system of yoga and getting to know ourselves, I think is like one of the biggest gifts that we can give ourselves. And, and not to be like, oh, I'm so great. I need to study myself all the time. But like when we know ourselves better, we relate better to other people. We can identify the needs that we have and be able to communicate those rather than expecting the people around us to read our minds. We can, you know, when we have a slip up with our eating disorder or an addiction or some kind of problematic behavior, we can stop and say like, what's behind this? You know, and so having really coming from the place of like inquiry about like, what is all that stuff on that list to me? To me, if I'm like, I would be rich and not have to worry about money. Like to me, I'm like, "Mm, that's the need for security and assurance that I have stability in my life. Where are some ways I can support that need that don't have anything to do with dieting? Because that does not have anything to do with dieting. Totally. Yeah, that's so well said. Like looking for the deeper meanings of each of those fantasy versions of yourself and then finding how you can pursue that. Yeah. So let's talk a little more about yoga and how you started body positive yoga. Sure. So about seven years into my practice. So along the way, I had found a teacher, Lisa Von Meer, who's one of my dearest friends now also, and one of my teachers and mentors. And she really was the first person that understood how to work with my body. And, you know, I had intuitively figured out a lot of like modifications and things back then, there was no Instagram, there was no like Googling how to do a sun salutation. Like now, like if I Googled plus size yoga, I would find lots and lots of videos and pictures and all that kind of stuff. And back then there was not. So at that point, I was so Diane Bondi was online, curvy yoga had been online for like a year. Abby Lentz was doing heavyweight yoga, like there was a book out called Big Yoga. That was about it. There wasn't hundreds of pictures of people doing yoga on the internet and that kind of stuff. There certainly wasn't a lot of people that I could look at and be like, oh, being a teacher is an option for someone like me. So again, with the like representation thing, being very 
powerful and effective thing. Uh, like I would look, and I think as humans, this is like a primal thing that we do. Like if we walk into a space and we don't look like anybody in that space, that's a signal to us that we're in the wrong place. Right. So to me, you know, and, and when I talk to te- I'm kind of getting off track here, but we'll, we'll go back. But <laughs> when I talk to other teachers and studio owners about, access to wellness spaces for marginalized folks. Like I talk about this and that if you never see yourself reflected in wellness marketing, in the people that walk in and out of wellness spaces and any of that stuff, there are things you can assume. One, you're not welcome there. That space is not for you. Two, you're not well. Are you allowed to be well? Like, is this something you should even pursue? Right. So then we recognize those things. We can kind of start to break those down. But anyway, back to your actual question. (laughs) No, that's such a great point, though. (laughs) So I told her, I know that there's more to this yoga thing than just like stretching. Like, I would like to learn more about it and kind of learn more of the stuff that had helped me, which was like the breathing and, and concentration and things like that. So I was like, do you think I should do teacher training? And she was like, you know, it really is the best way to kind of get that whole education unless you like piece it together yourself. So like, yes, I think it would be good for you. So I went into teacher training for that. I did not plan to be a yoga teacher. And the woman that I studied with was really wonderful. Her name's Anna Pittman. She's based out of Blacksburg, Virginia. She, you know, I wouldn't say her like big focus is asana, is the postures. Her focus is like the rest of yoga and sort of like, personal transformation, inner work, growth, that kind of stuff. And honestly, teacher training like shook up a lot of things for me. It really was, you know, my program was unique. It like lasted over a year. Now I know so many people that go for like three weeks or something, which I cannot imagine. But mine was like a weekend every five weeks or something. And so it was cool because we would go, we'd learn all this stuff. And then we go home and have time to like integrate it and do some inquiries and really like take it and sort of try it out in our lives. And to me, it was very important not to look at yoga as some sort of like esoteric mystical thing. Like for me, it had been a practical tool that had helped my life to be better. And I wanted to continue to use it that way, if that makes sense. And so I was really able to do that, like to take these sort of concepts that we would learn about and go home and like try it out. And so halfway through the teacher training, I realized that I was having a very different experience in my body than everybody else. You know, I was the only fat person in the class. And like we would do when we would do practice teaching, if one person would teach and then we'd all have to gather around and kind of give feedback. Well, I always had feedback because the teachers would ask me to make shapes with my body that it wouldn't make. And so I would say like, when you cue to step the foot forward from downward facing dog into a lunge, I just want you to know my belly's running into my thigh. Like I can't do it the way that you're asking me to do it. And so my teacher started to encourage me to like share more about like, cause I was pretty candid about what was going on in my body and I could, you know, speak frankly about my body and not, be embarrassed about it or whatever. Like at that point I was kind of to the place where I was like pretty matter of fact about it. And I had been practicing in these spaces and become comfortable in fitness spaces, even though I was not the typical person. Like it was kind of like, 
I wasn't afraid to take up space there anymore. And so I started really, you know, some of the reflections that we were doing probably landed me here. But I started thinking about back to when I had first started practicing yoga and how it had been years before I found a teacher who really even acknowledged my presence and that I was in a fat body. And I know now that yoga teachers do not receive the tools that they need to learn to work with diverse body types. They, you know, we leave yoga teacher training knowing how to teach other yoga teachers who are usually intermediate level, quote unquote, yoga students in thin, young, able bodies. And so we don't know how to work with beginners. We don't know how to work with people who are larger, who are disabled, who are older, any of that kind of stuff. So I was thinking back and I was like, you know, I continued to come back because even though I wasn't having like some glorious experience and feeling affirmed or any of that, I was getting so much benefit out of it with the sort of internal regulation tools that I was determined to continue to practice. But I thought about it and I was like, you know, most people wouldn't do that. Most people that I know who I've talked to who have had a bad experience with yoga, they went to the class, they were ignored, they were singled out, they were cheerleaded, they were <laughs> they were pushed into an uncomfortable position that their body wasn't ready to go in and they were injured or they injured themselves because there wasn't enough instruction to tell them how to do what the teacher wanted them to do. Like all these things happened that were awful. And of course, their assumption wasn't, this teacher doesn't know what they're doing, which is true. Their assumption is, my body is wrong, my body's messed up. Because of course you think that, that's the message you've already gotten a million times, right? And so they assume, well, who's on the cover of all these yoga magazines and in all these pictures, advertising, yoga things, is nobody that looks like me, so my body is wrong, I don't belong here, yoga's not for me. And I realized that even though I kept coming back, most people would not do that. And so I was like, you know, I bet I can prevent that from happening. And I can sort of set up an experience for these people and teach them in a way because of my lived experience that these other teachers can't. And so maybe I do have something to share here. So that's kind of when I decided that I would start teaching. So I've been teaching since 2011 some years more, some less, but I started blogging at the same time I started teaching. And I've blogged and put stuff online since I was like 16 and taught myself to like build myself a website on geocities.com. <laughs> wow, that's hardcore. <laughs> so it was pretty like normal for me to blog. And like I had had a blog for a long time that was about my DIY projects around the house, whatever. So of course, I was going to start a blog about my yoga stuff. And so I started putting content out there. Like I was like, I need to make a video and things like that. And I was like, let me put some photos up. And then there was a whole, you know, sort of journey around that. Because now I was looking at my body for the first time in these positions, and it looked wrong. And I was like, why does it look wrong? And I'm like, because I've never seen it. I've never seen a fat body doing yoga. And I'm like, I need to, uh, then I have to put this out there because I remembered how powerful it was for me to see other women, like the fat fashion stuff was the way that I started to accept my body. And so I was like, I have to be visible. Like I got to put myself out there for people who know magazine or ad or yoga studio photos are going to show me. So I have to show me. So other people will see and say like, oh, maybe I should try this. Because I was like, I want other people to experience the benefits that I had and like learn that there's a way to move their bodies that 
not everybody likes yoga and that's fine. But like for a lot of people, if they have a good experience with it, it is very powerful. Like embodied movement, I think has a little bit of special magic in there because we can come home to our bodies and sort of experience them in a positive way that doesn't have anything to do with changing our size or shape or weight or is not about fixing. It's just about like what is, you know? So that was what I started doing. And I've been putting stuff online for a few years now. And in 2015, I started leading retreats and that's been really amazing. And then this year in January, I quit my marketing job full time and I started doing this full time. And it's uh, <laughs> so cool. It's been a crazy ride. Like I'm really, you know, it's, it's not secure at all, which is very, it's a big deal for me to like take this much risk. And especially as like the primary breadwinner in our family, or I guess like I was <laughs> <laughs> now we're probably about the same, but like I gave up a lot of, I think security and stability in my career to do this, but I am not regretting it at all. It's totally like, I think it's changed a lot of things for me too. Being like the boss lady in a way that is very different from like I've worked for myself before, but I was a freelancer. But me being able to like provide the direction and be able to like make so many decisions while it is a huge responsibility, I think that has helped me to grow as well as a person. And, and honestly, things that are difficult for me, like setting boundaries with people or being in a situation where I I struggle with protecting people from my feelings or whatever. Like I've been able to have discussions with people and have differing opinions and not immediately apologize and like hide or whatever, you know? And so that's been really cool. Like I didn't expect that. I just want to say I completely identify with that. I feel (laughs) like maybe everyone should start a business because it it has also mine has helped me to grow in that way too. And it's the same way. I was like a freelance journalist for a long time and freelanced for other people. So I worked for myself, but it was a different thing. It was not owning my own company. And this is like, I am the boss. I make all the decisions. I have contractors and well, not employees, but like a bunch of different contractors working for me in different capacities. And like, it's a lot and setting boundaries and saying what you need and like expressing yourself has been, had historically been super hard for me too. So like that has been a real amazing aspect of this journey of this business journey is like being able to do that. Yeah. And it's a skill that we have to learn, like if we're going to be business owners and if not, then you're going to be miserable yep. because you're going to say yes to everything and, and let other people determine the direction of the work that you're doing. And like, so we have to learn that skill really quickly and it's starting to, you know, serve me away from that context. So that's been cool. And I've been able to do a lot of, of really cool things with it. I do a, an online teacher training course with Diane Bondi, who is another yoga teacher. Yes. She's in a bigger body. She's a woman of color from Canada. She's been on the podcast before, too. Oh, I loved, yeah, loved yeah. her episode. So. Diane is awesome. And so like I've admired her work online a long time and finally reached out to her after trying to collaborate with a few different people on this teacher training course thing. And it was just like, I had two kind of bad experiences with it. And I realized that I didn't get clear enough with these other people about what their mission was with teaching. And before, like we started to say like, we should do this thing. Like, you know, one person was, 
wanting to grow their following and somebody else was wanting to make money. And of course, I wanted this to generate income because that was one of my goals. When Diane and I created the course back in 2015, my goal was to be able to make this my job. And so, but I ran up against a lot of problems with that. And I realized after I talked to Diane for the first time, I was like, oh my God, she gets it. We've got to do this. And she had told me like that she wanted to do this for like five years. So we we built it and her husband is very involved in that project as well. We've run it twice a year since then. And she told me like, this is like one of the first times that I've been able to like support my family on yoga teacher stuff, which is, you know, makes me feel awesome that like I can be part of that and that we collaborated and built this thing. But we've also taken like more than 400 teachers through this program. And to me, that's like amazing because I go back to like one of the first things that pushed me to teach was like, I wanted to create this experience for people where they felt affirmed and seen and their body wasn't a problem. And like, now we get to scale ourselves. We get to teach them like all these things from our experience as people in bigger bodies who have developed a really consistent, fulfilling practice and become teachers. And now we can put it out into the world. And that's been really cool. Oh, that's so amazing. Tell us where people can find you and learn more about your work online. Absolutely. So bodypositiveyoga.com. And I'm on Facebook, Body Positive Yoga. On Instagram, Body Positive Yoga underscore. Don't forget the underscore. (laughs) (laughs) I'm on YouTube if you search Body Positive Yoga. I think I'm on Pinterest, but I've really neglected that. So probably don't judge me by that. (laughs) (laughs) Same here, actually. Yeah, but everything's linked from my from my website. And if you go there, there's a button that says start here. And I have like seven mini classes. Like if you want to drop your email, I'll send you an email like every day for a week with a mini video, which you can download and practice with or whatever. And I have a lot of free videos, breaking down poses and with different classes on my YouTube. So there's tons of free content on the site in addition to, you know, like the membership site and workshops and that kind of thing. So I encourage everybody to check all that stuff out because I I mean, I made it because I want people to have access to to this practice. And like, there's some really good tools out there. There's plenty of people doing this work, but I, I hope that the stuff that I'm doing is, is helpful to folks. And, and that's at the heart of my, (laughs) of what I want. So I, I'm always really, really grateful when I can hear that, that like, I found you and I did this sun citation video that you had. And then I started going to classes and now I practice yoga on the regular. And I'm like, I know that's not like, I'm not looking for the credit of that. But like, for me, I'm like, yes, I know that feeling that you have. And I know that they feel empowered and in their bodies. And that's so cool that I get to like participate in that process at all. Like, I love it. (laughs) Mm, That's amazing. And I think that commitment really shows through in your work. So thank you. Thank you so much for being here, Amber. It's lovely talking with you. Thank you so much for having me. So that's our show. Thanks again so much to our guest, Amber Carnes, for being here. And thanks to you for listening. To get full show notes from this episode, including all of the resources we mentioned, head over to christyharrison.com slash 124 for episode 124. That's christyharrison.com slash 124. We all know someone who could benefit from these anti-diet messages, right? So let's help them and us out by sharing the podcast with them. 
If they're one of those people who don't really know how podcasts work, you can just grab their phone and show them how to listen and subscribe them to Food Psych while you're at it. Just remember, Food Psych is spelled F-O-O-D space P-S-Y-C-H, and there's no E on the end. A lot of people want to put an E on the end, but then that would be Food Psyche, not Food Psych. So it's Food Psych with no E on the end. And if you want to help change the world and make dieting and disordered eating, fat phobia and body shame go the way of the dodo, share Food Psych with your friends because the more people we reach, the more quickly we'll be able to bring down diet culture. You can also leave us a nice rating and review on iTunes, which helps new listeners discover us as well and is always so much appreciated. So just go to the podcast app on your phone, click on the little three dots at the corner of your screen and click to share the episode with your friends. Or you can share our website, which is christyharrison.com slash food psych. This episode was brought to you by my online course, Intuitive Eating Fundamentals. If you're ready to break free from diet culture and learn how to eat intuitively so that you can just get on with your bad self and change the world, you can learn more and sign up at christyharrison.com course. That's christyharrison.com course. Food Psych is edited and engineered by the amazing folks at Podcast Fast Track. Our administrative and community manager is Ashley Soroya, and our album art was photographed by Abby Moore Photography and designed by Meredith Noble. The music you're hearing behind me now is by a band called AWOL, and the track is called Food, used under the Creative Commons license. Thanks again for listening, and until next time, stay psyched. Stupid or scared, no work in the kitchen now. 